Well, this morning, please turn to Psalm chapter 24 as we journey through the first book of Psalms. This is where we're stopping today to read God's word. As you turn there, I wanted to remind you of of a few events in biblical history. Perhaps you remember the names of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron the high priest, who when they went in to offer strange or unauthorized fire before the Lord, were struck down and died. I wanted to remind you of the name of Uzzah, a man who thought he was doing the right thing by reaching out to study the Ark of the Covenant as it was being transported in an unworthy or unauthorized way on a cart. He thought it was going to fall. He reached out to study it, and God struck him down dead. And then, of course, maybe you've heard the name of Moses. Moses, when God gave him the opportunity to see his glory, told him that he could not see him face to face, but instead he could only see his back. You see, because of our lack of holiness, we cannot enter the presence of God apart from God's grace. This psalm reminds us of that. It is a psalm that reminds us of what it would be to be able to enter the presence of God. Follow along as I read these ten verses. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let's pray together. O king of glory, Lord of hosts, worthy of our praise, may your spirit reside upon us this day to teach us your word, to bring it to our minds, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to regenerate us, convict us, and change us. Lord, may the words, the thoughts, and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you're aware that there are around the world, not only in the past but also today, elaborate worthiness rituals that are conducted not only in idolatrous worship before statues and idols in places around the world, but also in many religions and even in social or civil orders and societies. Perhaps you remember seeing a 
a picture, a film, or hearing the details of someone that's gone through an elaborate ceremony to prove their worthiness before God, or to prove their worthiness before other people, or to prove their worthiness to participate in a particular religious exercise. There are cleansing ceremonies. There are declarations of worthiness by personal vouching of others or witnesses. There are mysterious so-called spiritual cleansings and even more. Some of them have included self-degradation, perhaps even physical, uh, physically beating of themselves. They have included all types of words and oaths and vows. But how is it that one can truly enter what is really a holy place? Well, in this psalm, the psalmist David reminds us that this is really not about us so much as it is about God. Yahweh or Jehovah L-O-R-D, perhaps in your translation in capital letters, is the creator. He is holy, and yet he is gracious, but he is glorious. First of all, the first two verses remind us of this basic fact. God is the creator. It says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. First of all, he says that the earth belongs to him. If you know anything about poetry, you know, as some of our men have studied in our men's Bible study, often in Hebrew poetry there is parallelism. So in other words, one phrase often is shown in the next phrase to be very similar in meaning. When he says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, he is describing basically the same thing. All of the earth, in this term particularly looking at the geological earth, that is all that we can see and measure, and everything that is contained in it belongs to the Lord. The next one says that the world belongs to him. Now for us, the earth and the world is the same thing, although we understand earth sometimes is the name of a planet. But when it talks about the world here, it's particularly talking about the inhabitants of that world. And so when it says the world and those who dwell therein, again, this is a parallel meaning, meaning the same thing. Two phrases to emphasize that all the people in the world belong to God. Why is that true? Because of the next verse. The for word there is a because statement. It is because God has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You see, God has laid its foundation, as it says here, upon the waters. Now, if you are interested in some of the meaning of why on the seas and on the waters, you perhaps are reminded of Genesis 1 and talking about the earth being void and talking about the land coming up out of the waters and so forth. Others think that perhaps he may be relating to the victory over the Canaanites who had so many godlike features amongst their idols that had to do with the seas and the rivers. I don't think it matters so much. It's a reminder that God is the creator of all things. The Lord is sovereign over all of the earth. Now about once a year, 
My family and I sit down at our dinner table in the dining room, and we begin to play some games. Now, these aren't your ordinary games. You see, Jennifer's students have a project they do once a year in which they are to invent a board game. And so we sit down and we begin to play those board games. And we particularly have to pay attention to the rules. Now, as you can imagine, as uh, this year, last year, there were fourth grade students, sometimes it's difficult to follow these rules. And that's, of course, what we're graded by. But here it is, we play those games and we seek to do those things, but it has to be in connection with the rules and standards that the game provides. And of course, where do the game rules come from? They come from the creator of the games. And you have to follow those rules. Well, in this psalm, we're reminded that God is the creator of heaven and earth, and particularly the world and all that is in it, And so therefore, by saying this, because he is the creator, we understand that as the owner of the place and people of the world, God is the one who establishes the parameters, not only by how we live a life pleasing to him, but particularly by which we have access to his presence. You see, he is holy. And in order to come to God... We, too, must be holy, both aspects of this word. One way, being set apart. Another way, being without sin, without blemish. How is it in this category, then, with God as the creator, the one who sets the rules for coming into his presence, who, then, can ascend the hill of the Lord and shall stand in his holy place? In other words... Who can enter into the presence of God and who can stay there? We're given the answer in verses 4 through 6. Now if I were to turn back to Psalm 15, you would see much of the same description that's described here. But look at these words, if you would, with me. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear falsely. The first group of people or the first description of the people who can come into God's presence or stay in his presence are those who are perfect. How many of you are perfect? I don't see anybody raising their hands. This means you're without sin. In fact, the description here is this, clean or innocent hands. This describes our activities. When the scriptures talk about the work of our hands, it talks about the things that we do, our actions, our day-to-day, everyday things that we do. Are you one who has innocent hands? Now, in one way we describe this is, is we're innocent of bloodshed. In other words, you have not taken somebody's life unworthily. But, of course, we know to have truly innocent hands, it's not just that you've not taken someone's life unjustly, for Jesus himself says, it's not just that you would actually literally kill somebody, it's if you've thought bad thoughts in your heart about somebody. And of course, that plays out. Do you have innocent hands? If you think, by and large, yes, I have innocent hands, it also says you need a pure heart. 
A pure heart reminds us that it's not just the things that you do, the outward appearance of holiness that is perfect in your actions, not doing things that would be against God's law and things that we can see, but also what comes in your heart. Do you have any thoughts that are impure? Do you have any ideas that are opposed to God's will? Do you have any thing in your heart that shows that you do not love God completely with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what verse 4 is telling us. If you then have innocent hands and pure hearts, then perhaps you might be able to enter God's presence and stay there. But it doesn't stop there. It also says this, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Literally, it says, did not raise up my soul to vanity. In other words, you're not wasting your life. You've not lifted up your soul to what is vain and worthless. In other words, your life is not wrapped around a false god or an idol. It is not wrapped around something that in eternal view of all of history is meaningless. In other words, he's saying here, not only do you have clean hands and a pure heart, but your life is given to the purpose for which God created you. Okay, so let's say you check these three boxes. Let's go to the fourth one does not swear deceitfully, or did not swear to fraud. This is a reminder that there are those who can profess to believe in Jesus. There are those who can can profess to believe in the holy God, but in their heart they don't really mean it. There are those at times that recognize that they have done something wrong, but won't admit it. And of course, we know if we're honest... Every one of us in here, at one point in our life, has lied. That's basically what's described here. If you haven't done something with your hands that's evil, if you don't think that you've done something in your heart that's evil, we know that you've you've used words that are evil. In other words, the person that is to be in the holy presence of God, ascending his holy hill, looking at the picture of Mount Zion into Jerusalem, as they come up to that place, who can come there? Those who are perfect. In fact, scripture, Jesus says, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The problem is that would disqualify everybody, wouldn't it? But verse 5 kind of gives us the remedy to that, to that. It says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You see, those who enter the presence of God are perfect because they are redeemed. I happen to think it's unfortunate that we have the word receive in this particular translation. The word is the same that is used in verse 7 for lift up your heads, O gates. It is the word, he will lift up. He will lift up the blessing from the Lord or from Yahweh, and he will lift up the righteousness from the God of his salvation. What is it describing here? It's describing someone who, as he's entering the presence of God, he recognizes that he is not perfect, his hands are not innocent, 
His heart is not pure. His life, at least at times, has been given over to vanity. And he has sworn with his lips to fraud. And in doing all those things, he recognizes he is a sinner. He is convicted of his sins. And thus, when he comes to ascend that hill, he lifts up almost, I see it as a picture, as a shield, saying, this is the blessing that I have from the Lord that gives me the opportunity to enter into your presence in my unworthiness. And what is that blessing? It is righteousness. You see, if you recognize you're not perfect, you recognize you don't have clean hands, you don't have a pure heart, you recognize you're a sinner, you're not holy, you're not worthy to enter God's presence, how can we possibly do so? It's only if we receive righteousness from another source. Because if we're not perfect, that means we have none of our own righteousness. And of course, you know the scriptures, our righteousness is like filthy rags. We have nothing to show that we're worthy to enter the presence of God, and yet by God's grace there are those who can enter as if they are cleansed and perfect and holy. How? Because they're lifting up before the Father the righteousness of the God of his salvation. In other words, this is righteousness not from our works because they're dirty, Not from our abilities because we cannot cross the barrier that goes to the presence of God. But we lift up the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith because this righteousness is from God. In fact, the theological term is to say it is alien righteousness. Of course, if you're a kid, you laugh at that because you think we're talking about aliens up here. Alien meaning It does not reside in us. It is from outside of us. And it is something that is not, absolutely not from us, from anything we've done, anything we've earned before a holy God. This is a righteousness from God that he's applied to us by faith. How do we know that? Because of the last little phrase. The God of his salvation. You see, the person who can enter into the presence of God is only the person who has recognized that they needed to be saved from their sins and their unworthiness and their unrighteousness. And so by faith they have turned and repented of their sins, trusted on Christ for salvation, and received the righteousness from God that now allows them to come into his presence. It's because of this there was another that went first. The one person who was perfect and without sin. The one who offered himself as a sacrifice without blemish. The one person who could enter the gates of the most holy place based on his worthiness and his perfect condition rather than the blood of a sacrifice outside of himself, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 9, verse 24, in your bulletin on the insert, which I don't seem to have up here with me, it says this, 
For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see, once Jesus entered that place, it was for the purpose of others being to enter through his righteousness offered to us through faith. You see, those who enter this holy place and can ascend that hill, yes, in the Old Testament, we're looking forward to the Christ to come through the sacrificial system that would temporarily take care of their sins. But now in Christ, we can enter into that place as if we had perfect hands, perfect hearts, and lives lived according to the purpose of God. And so we become Jacob. Verse 6 says this, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Again, the language here, it's not to seek the face of the God of Jacob, it's to seek your face, Jacob. Kind of unusual Hebrew, we don't know exactly how to describe that, except perhaps that we understand that we become those of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, those who come into his presence are those who seek the Lord. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Generation here. Charles Spurgeon on this passage says that this is not just the generation, meaning the generation of that day when David wrote this psalm. This is the regeneration. That is uh, the group of people that the Holy Spirit has caused to be regenerated so that they would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the ones who seek him. Scriptures tell us, we've already seen in the psalm, Psalm 14, there is no one who seeks God. So there must be a change in that individual. The ones who come and seek him are the ones in which the benefits of salvation have been applied. And what do they seek? They seek him. We've been looking at Psalm 119 in our men's Bible study, and we've got several months to go on that particular psalm. But as we look at that psalm, one of the things that's been so fascinating, in the first two sections of that psalm, it talks over and over again about the commandments and the precepts and the law and all the words that are used for the statutes of God. But in that context, it's always focused on seeking God. Not just seeking to be worthy by following the commandments, but the person who wants to be in the presence of God is someone who's seeking him. And so they're seeking him And by then, corollary, they're seeking his face. That is, his presence. We want to be with God. Now, that's not natural if we're sinners. If we're sinners and we want to be with God, we recognize, or we will recognize, that we cannot be with God. If we go to God, then he will punish us and discipline us for our sins. But if we have been saved from our sins by a Savior with alien righteousness, there's nothing more than we want than to be with God. In our country in the year 1959, a man by the name of Maharishi Maharishi Yogi introduced and imported a practice commonly described as quite spiritual called transcendental meditation. Those practicing this were seeking spirituality or perhaps cleansing or peace. And the common practice, the most common of this type of meditation is to sit quietly somewhere 
perhaps in a particular position, close your eyes and clear it completely of everything, hoping to attain peace and happiness. Studies tell us that there may be purported health benefits to do this particular thing. And so those who are seeking it are seeking all kinds of spiritual and physical peace. But the problem is this. They're not seeking God. Worshippers of the living God seek too. We don't seek the benefits. We don't seek the peace that God can give. We don't seek the happiness that God can give. These are things we receive as benefits. But what we're actually seeking is God. We're seeking him. And not a God, not access to a God like a genie who would give us whatever we wanted. We're seeking God because of who he is. Sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent. All those fancy words to say he is the God that is unlike the rest of creation because he's the creator. And everything is in his hands and yet by his grace He is loving and merciful. You see, that's why this passage reminds us God is holy, but he's also gracious. If he was not both, we could not enter his presence. But if you are the one who has recognized God is the creator, if you are the one who recognizes that you are unworthy to enter into the presence of God, unless it would be by grace from the God of your salvation who gives you righteousness, then you understand this last part of the passage. Verses 7 through 10, a hymn of victory. In fact, the commentators describe this as perhaps David writing after a battle over the Canaanites. And after a battle over the Canaanites, the Ark of the Covenant, which was taken out in the battle, would be brought back and they would be rejoicing and coming into the place of the tabernacle Probably at this point, not literal gates, but there were gatekeepers. Those Levites who were instructed to be those who would ask those questions. Why should you come into the presence of God in the tabernacle? Are you worthy? What sacrifices do you bring? And so they call out this refrain. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. But notice the description here, that the king of glory may come in. You see, God is glorious. The question is this, who is this king of glory? And the answer is given twice. First of all, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And secondly, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. You see, first of all, God is glorious before the gates and doors of his presence. You see, he's the king of glory. He's not the king who just is like all the other kings. He is the king of kings. He is worthy of glory when none other is worthy. He is the king of glory because he has won the victories. He is the king of glory because he is the creator. He is the king of glory because yet by his, except by his grace, we would have no access to know who and what he is. He is the king of glory, but he is also the king who comes. This is the good news. This is the king who comes. This isn't the king who's off somewhere 
as some of our early founders purportedly may have believed. I don't know all the details of what people believed in the 18th century, but what they purportedly, be, purportedly believed, some of them, was that God created the world, wound it up, and let it go, and here we all are. If that was the God we had, we'd be in big trouble. But the God we had is the God who comes. He came and he intervened in the lives of the Israelites time and time again. Hailstones dropped down from heaven to destroy the enemy, intervening on behalf of his people to rescue them again and again, giving them the great plagues from heaven to rescue them from Egypt and the Exodus giving them victory time and time again on the battlefield, calling them back unto himself. But perhaps the best way to describe the king coming is this, Jesus himself coming in the flesh to save his people. You see, he's the king of glory that comes. I was reminded when I visited Doug in the hospital this last week a few times, and I said, what passage would you like me to read for you? And he said, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, where at the end of that particular passage it says, the Lord our righteousness. And then we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we find out that when it describes the Lord as our righteousness, this is the God of heaven and earth, and the Lord is also describing the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christ is our righteousness. You see, unless that king came, we would have no hope. But we rejoice because the king of glory has come. And he continues by his spirit to come into the hearts of his people and change them and mold them. So that when we ask this question, who is the king of glory? Here is the answer. First of all, again, a repetitive thing. He is the king of glory. The king of glory. He is worthy. He is unlike anything else or anyone else in all creation. He is outside of creation. He is worthy of our praise. Why? In part is this, because he's a powerful king. This is what it says, strong. This is the word powerful, strong. In other words, they recognized in saying these words in those days, he is the source of victory over physical enemies. Why could Goliath be defeated? It wasn't because David's sling was so great. It's because God was in it. It wasn't because they were a more numerous or powerful people because they weren't. It's because God was their God. He was powerful, but he's also mighty. In fact, you might remember David had a bunch of mighty men. This is the word that's used here for mighty men. This particular word, a hero. He is someone who is mighty, a hero for the people. And then in verse 10, when it asks that question again, it says he's the Lord of hosts. This is the word armies. I always wondered as a kid, what does, what does it mean that he's the Lord of hosts? This is used particularly in the book of Isaiah several times. And in other places throughout scripture, what does it mean when it says he's the Lord of hosts? What are hosts? They're not the people who give you food at somebody's house. They're armies. These are Military terms, battle terms. You see, if this really was a psalm written to celebrate victory in battle over the Canaanites as the ark was brought back to the temple in Mount Zion, 
they were understanding this in war terms that God was the victory, was the victor and gave them the victory over their enemies. And so when they said he's the Lord of hosts, they recognized at times, especially scripture is very detailed to describe more people died by the hand of God than in the battle. Sometimes as they came, they recognized it was only by God's work in that battle that they had the victory. Despite the great war mind of David, despite the the heroes in battle, despite the numbers that, that could be in their favor at time and time again, yet it's God who gives the victory. You see, our God is a mighty king who not only fights on behalf of his people, but he also defeated something else so very important. This passage is foreshadowing something else that would take place as Jesus would enter into the gates of Jerusalem on Passover week. And as he came into those gates, the people were recognizing him as king in the line of David. And as they recognized this mighty king was coming, little did they know, for they would later betray him. But little did they know when they were praising this king coming in the gates, they were praising a mighty warrior, yes, in peace riding on a donkey. And yet in that entrance into Jerusalem, he was symbolizing for all the world to see that once and for all, he was going to defeat sin and death and hell. He is the great victor. He is the mighty hero. He is the most powerful king on the planet and here he is this psalm, this psalm first of all foreshadowed the coming of Christ into Jerusalem secondly uh, secondly it foreshadows the ascension of Christ into heaven that now once he has defeated death and he is raised from the dead he is now in his worthiness completing the will of God in all his perfection coming not into the gates of the temple in Jerusalem but coming into the real presence of God in the temple not made by hands, but to be able to enter into the presence of God on behalf of all those who would follow him. You see, that's the third thing. You and I are those who can ascend the hill and enter the presence of God. Why? Because that curtain has been torn in two by the king who died on the cross. By the power of the resurrection, he is the firstborn from the dead. You see, our entrance into the presence of the Lord upon our death or at the last day of judgment is only made possible by the righteousness from the God of salvation that we receive as a blessing of grace. I'm asking you this morning, if you really aren't the perfect person with clean hands, pure hearts, living a life of vanity, or swearing deceitfully, if you really are one of those people, your only hope is the King of Glory. He has entered the Lord's presence. He is now there at his right hand. Your only hope is the Spirit of God changing and transforming you to trust in him for salvation and in him, that is Christ alone. Let us all, I hope and pray, enter the Lord's house. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this glorious hymn of praise and rejoicing and victory. We pray that every person in this room 
will experience the victory in Christ Jesus over our sin and its punishment over death and hell itself. Father, we pray that we might trust in you so that we can be with you and enter your presence and seek your face. We pray.